chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one. And we're going to begin, we'll read beginning this evening in verse number 17 and read down tonight to verse number 25. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 17 through 25. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me this evening to deal faithfully with your word and always, Father, that our church would exist and serve under the authority of Scripture. So we ask for clear and good understanding of what you are telling us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so several weeks ago, we began to look at, uh, of course, 1 Corinthians. Paul started this church. You can read about its founding in Acts chapter 18. Um, I think, I, I don't think that it's a stretch to say that the church at Corinth um, consumed a large part of Paul's attention. Um, he spent a year and a half there. Uh, which is second only to his time in Ephesus. And he wrote at least three letters and possibly four. Only two of them are recorded for us as inspired. Uh, But this was a church that was much on his mind, um, that occupied much of his thinking and certainly his praying. And uh, when we'll get to this eventually, when Paul went in there to preach, he was very careful Um, not to, for lack of a better word, pander to any expectations the Corinthians might have. uh, And and when he's going in, you have to remember, we'll get to this again, that he's he's not coming in to preach to believing people. When Paul enters into Corinth, he is the first person, as far as we know, to bring the gospel of Christ to these people. Um, And yet he is very careful in his method of speaking to them. And he begins to talk about that this evening. That kind of idea will consume much of what we do for the next few weeks, and we will try to develop really kind of a pretty extensive picture of what Paul is concerned about. We saw in 1 Corinthians 1-2 
that part of the expectation, not only of Corinth, but of all of God's churches, are that they, to, they are to advance and to be growing in grace and knowledge. That we have been called um, by God to be sanctified um, and that we are to be oriented towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a church that in almost every imaginable aspect of its existence is struggling to get there with no good reason. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to when he points out that they come behind in no gift. That it is not because of anything that God has deprived them of. That they are more than spiritually equipped to be the kind of ministry that God wants them to be. And that a large part of what is wrong he is dealing with in the first four chapters, which is their growing persuasion that they can do this. I think maybe that's a good way to think of it, that, that they can do this, that, that they can do Christianity and do church. And so rather than advancing, Paul encounters many problems with these people that he is walking through, and he's begun already to do that. Um, and, and the first thing that he takes up then is this in, inner turmoil in the church over human personality, which again, folks, we want to understand is not simply having a speaker or a preacher that God has used in your life to be a great blessing or benefit to you. It is along the lines of believing that something in that man is the secret to his ministry. And so therefore they are aligning themselves with this people. And that's kind of what we had worked up to the last time. And, and we kind of we concluded with verse number 17 that Paul points out that God had not sent him to baptize, which Paul here is not trying to cut the legs out of the Great Commission. He is just simply pointing out that the magnification of what God had called him to do is the proclamation of the gospel message. In other words, folks, we could kind of put it this way, right? Baptism means nothing to unregenerated people. I'm not saying that unregenerated people do not find great personal value in baptism. They have their babies baptized every week. But if people are not regenerated, baptism is a meaningless ritual. And that's where Paul is going here. He didn't send me to baptize, he sent me to preach. And, and he gave me both a mission or a message and a methodology. And so he, he, he then makes the contrast in verse 17. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. And again, we're going to come back to this, folks. We'll have to talk about this many times. But, but we should not think that that means that Paul just stood up and started babbling or just spewing random Bible verses. Right? Paul is going to use this idea of wisdom, and he's going to talk about man's wisdom and wisdom of words. He's, he's going to talk about appealing to or catering to a worldly mindset, some way, some way that we are going to arrange the gospel to bypass what we perceive to be people's natural barriers. 
That's what he's talking about here. I mean, we're going to get to this, right? The Jews have their reasons for not liking it. The Greeks have their reasons for not liking it. And so conventional wisdom would say what the church needs to do then is figure out a way without compromising the gospel in any way, right? But figure out how to break down those barriers and how to break down those obstacles so that they do not become impediments to what really matters the gospel. And Paul is going, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think at all that that's what we're supposed to do. And, okay, and let me just right, make my disclaimer right out of the gate here, right? I'm not in any way shape or form trying to take some around the the backside swipe at much of what goes on in contemporary church movements although much of it is wrong but fundamentalism has its own horrific abuses of what Paul is condemning right we have we have our own technique based christianity in which we are carefully convincing ourselves that our methodologies are going to accomplish the mission I've been sent to preach, not been sent to baptize, and I've been sent to preach, verse 17, not with wisdom of words. Not with wisdom of words. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect, lest it should be emptied of its power. The, the, The power is in the cross. And the power is in the proclamation of the cross. And Paul is insistent upon that all right but before we work our way through verses 18 through 25 i really just kind of want to begin here this evening right because paul not because because of what paul said not that paul said to say this but paul keeps talking about wisdom and he's going to talk about the wisdom of men and the wisdom of god the 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 ability of the human mind to comprehend and to interpret and to act upon the basis of information, right? We have knowledge, which is kind of the raw information, what we know, and we have skill, how to use what we know, wisdom, the skill to use those things that we know. And this is what Paul is concerned about. I I just thought, as I was thinking about this, that we might want to begin by spending just a couple of minutes and talking about how amazing the human mind really is. The human mind is a genuinely amazing organ. And of course, all the glory for that belongs to the God who is capable of creating something as amazing as our human minds. I mean, we can take in information and we can analyze and assess that information and we can utilize that information in various ways. You can yell at your dog, but your dog is never going to connect the dots of your anger and the tone of your voice and make rational decisions and go, you know, on the basis of this behavior and this statement and this piece of information over here and the past history of what I know about my owner, I don't think I should do that in the future. But the human mind can do that. And sometimes it takes people who are really outside the realm of what we call normal to have some grasp of how amazing our minds actually are. I've talked about this man on numbers of occasions. His name is Kim Peek. He is dead now. 
Kim Peek memorized 12,000 books. He didn't read 12,000 books. He memorized the contents of 12,000 books. And he could read one page with each eye so that he could read two pages of a book simultaneously. Now, Kim Peek had some very serious physical debilitations. He, to the day he died, and he was somewhere in the vicinity of 60, I think, when he died, he used two hands to hold a glass for drinking water. And dressing himself was a challenge. But <clears throat> if you gave him your birthday, he could tell you what day of the week it was when you were born. He knew all the zip codes. And as I said, he had read and memorized 12,000 volumes that he, he could call to memory at a moment. And most of us don't do that, but obviously, in some ways, the human mind is capable of that. It is an amazing, amazing creation. Or Leslie Lemsky, who was born with brain damage, cerebral palsy, had his eyes removed at six months. When he was six months old, they just removed his eyes for the sake of his health. And yet, he could play, after hearing one song one time, he could play it perfectly, any song that he'd ever heard. He never needed to practice it again. He never had to have the music in front of him. If he heard a song, he could play it perfectly from memory. Or a guy by the name of Daniel Tammet, whose original claim to fame, the thing that brought him into the public spotlight, was that from memory he recited pi, you know, 3.14, to 22,514 decimal points. It took him five hours. He can speak 11 languages. And this is the one that to me is just stunning. Daniel Tammet, every number between 1 and 10,000, Pick a number, whatever number enters your mind. To him, has its own shape, color, and texture. Six is not nine because it feels different. Five thousand is not eight thousand because it's a different color. The human mind is an amazing thing. It can direct its attention to the alleviation of human suffering. And many inventions that we enjoy, much of the technology that we enjoy has been designed by people, much of it for military applications or just for the sake of making life easier or more fun. We have mechanical improvements and medical improvements and technological improvements. And even people who deny the very existence of God are not content with the world as it is. They want to improve it to fix it, to repair it. Even though it seems to me that a perfectly rational question to ask any evolutionist is, well, exactly what is wrong with the world? But it always is in need of repair. But if you brought folks all of the capabilities and all of the energies of the human mind together, or when you do this, they always come up with the same generalized answers. We need more money. 
more research, more education, more time. And I went through all that, folks, simple as it is to make this point. If you took all of the greatest minds in human history that have ever lived and put them in a room and set them to solving the problem of humanity, they would never, ever, 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 if they had eternity, come up with the cross. They would never do that. They would come up with educational solutions and medical solutions and societal solutions and social justice solutions. But they would never come up with regeneration solutions. They just don't do that. They just don't think that way. That is a rationale that is beyond them. Men are not going to go there. They are not, by the way, going to go there in part because it is so demeaning to them to be there. So that, let's turn our attention back to the text. Why is it, folks, why is it that what we are doing requires something more than just figuring out the best way to find out what people think they need to hear and showing them how Jesus can fill that need. Or just providing the message of the cross in a way that is least offensive to give them the truth that Christ died for them but to make it as acceptable as possible not that Paul went out of his way to make it ugly well in verses 18 through 20 Paul points out to them that it is the work of Christ on the cross that is God's method for saving men. Right? Jesus, verse 17, didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. Because unregenerated, baptized people are still lost people. And he sent me to preach not with wisdom of words. And again, we will talk, we'll try to figure out what does he mean there. What he certainly means is nothing that would take the legs out from the cross. Nothing that would deprive it of its power. Why is that, verse number 18? Because, for, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto them, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The cross is God's method of saving people from their sins. Verse number 18, Paul talks about the preaching of the cross and, and he uses the word preaching Or there are three different words that are translated preaching in this passage. In this passage. In verse number 17, right? Christ sent me not to baptize, 
but to evangelize. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to evangelize, but to preach the gospel. In verses 21 through 23, he uses yet another word, and we will look at that word when we get there. But in verse number 18, the word that he is using is actually the Greek word for word. The logos. The proclamation of the cross. The word of the cross. You may have translation that translates it that way. Or you may have a note that way. The word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. That word logos right, can refer to the study or the understanding of something. Biology. Biologos. Theology. Theologos. It's a word that we use that we attach to words to describe the study of something or the field of study or the field of science of that thing. But the Greek word logos can also refer to the substance of a thing. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the substance, not just the study of God. And that's the way that the word is being used here, right? In the substance sense, for the word of the cross, the content of the message that the cross is proclaiming is to them who are perishing moronic, Moronic, it is foolish. You are a sinful person whose sin has alienated you from God and he is angry with you and he offers to you mercy through the death of his son. But if you will not accept his sacrifice, you will suffer the full merit weight of your sins. That's idiotic. There's no way that I'm that bad. There's no way that anybody's that bad. That's ridiculous. God would never do that to anyone. The word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It is moronic. The very content of the message of the cross is offensive to us, folks. When was the last time that your boss yelled at you and you liked it. We never like that. We never like that. We don't like that from the get-go and by the time we're two years old, we're able to communicate to everyone within hearing distance that we don't like that. It is offensive to us. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, it's not that offensive to me, that's because you're not among those that are perishing. Right? Because the converse is, verse number 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. We love the cross. But we love the cross because we're the ones who are being saved. By the cross. By the content of what Jesus did 
for us. So Paul is thinking then about the substance of the cross, that man's greatest problem is not physical death. It is not even his own unhappiness. It is not his mental depression. It is the fact that he is living under, he is existing under the condemnation of God. And that condemnation is not going anywhere, but only increasing every day as that unbeliever continues in their sin. So this is the substance. Why did Christ send me to evangelize? Why did he send me to evangelize not with wise words? Because the very substance of the cross is offensive. And there's, there's no way to revamp it to make it anything other than it is. And this is deliberate. Folks, this is part of the thing that Paul finds so upsetting to the Corinthians. It isn't the Corinthians' task. It isn't our task. It isn't our job, folks. It isn't our responsibility to look at the world around us and to assess the, the, the needs and the appetites of the world around us and to figure out the best way to communicate that message to them. Because God has already written, and this is a reference in verse number 19 to Isaiah 29, which I will read from in just a moment. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm not interested in interacting with it. I'm not interested in accommodating myself to it. I'm not interested in finding out what it really wants so that I can rise to meet the challenge. I'm just going to crush it. Isaiah 29, 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Men come in and explain not what God wants from them, but what they think men ought to do. By the precept of men. So that rather than finding themselves closer to the Lord, they are more alienated than ever from the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among the people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So rather than in any way try to accommodate whatever Paul means by the wisdom of the world, God says, no, no, no. The cross, and as we will see, the proclamation of the cross is a full frontal attack on that. Not a companion of it. Paul taught the same thing in Romans 1, 21 through 23 about men and their own wisdom. Right? Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fools. Again, what happens when you, well, what happens if you bring the best and the brightest in to solve the world's most pressing problem? 
they will come up with something that is against God. They will not come up with God as the answer. And so Paul then asked the question, and we, we ask, what, does Paul, what is Paul asking in verse number 20? And I, I think he's asking a question that he will come back to in verse number 26. Look around you. Right, this is something that Paul is going to bring up to the Corinthians yet again. Right? He, he goes in and he preaches the gospel and people get saved and a thriving ministry is growing, well equipped with all of the spiritual gifts, but it doesn't take long till they are off track. And, and what, what preoccupies them? The wisdom of men. We've, we've got to come up with better ways to reach Corinth. And Paul then in verse number 20 asked the question, well, where are these wise people? Where are they? And where is, the, where is that scribe? Where is, where is that lawyer? And where is the disputer of this world? How many, how many of the wise men of this world have your wise words won that they are now bringing their wise words to bear? For the sake of Christ. Where are they? Right, and we could go on and on and on folks. If you get the commentaries and go to the internet. And <clears throat> go to Precept Austin. Where you can read dozens and dozens of commentaries. There's no end to speculation. About who these people are. But let's, keep it, let's just keep it simple. These are the professionals of Paul's day. These are the power brokers. And the problem solvers. Let's just look around the average Bible-believing church. And I realize that I'm the pastor here, and this may sound self-serving, but in many ways, we're a little unusual in that area. Survey the average Bible-believing church. How many scientists are there? Not that there are none. Our daughter, our youngest daughter and son-in-law go to church with a heart surgeon. Not that there are none. They're just not the majority. How many politicians are true believers? How many celebrities are true believers? <clears throat> How many athletes are true believers? Not that there are none. Paul's not ever arguing that there are none. Paul is just simply raising this question. If the wisdom of the world is all that you think it is, and your methodology and philosophy and techniques are all that you claim them to be, where are the results? What has that produced? Like should produce like. So the cross is God's message. The substance of the message is that God became a man. And as that man died on the cross for our sins, as our substitute was raised from the dead on the third day, and faith in him will wash you from your sins and their guilt and make you a whole new person. In verses 21 through 24 then, Paul, right, building upon the message of the cross, right, 
Paul points out that the proclamation of the cross is the methodology that God has chosen. How will people really come to faith in Christ? They will be told about Christ. And it is at this point then in verses 21 through 24, but after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And when Paul talks, uses the word preach here, he uses a different word. We have evangelize in verse number 17. We have the word logos, the word, in verse number 18. And now we have the word that would best be described in English as proclaim. It pleased God by the foolishness of proclamation to save them that believe. When Paul used that word, everybody understood that it was the equivalent of the president holding a press conference. It was the public announcement of official policy. That was how the word was used. And of course, the only they didn't have any kind of media, not print, not airwaves. <clears throat> so the official, whoever the official would be, would hire messengers who would go to the public square, to the public marketplace, read the proclamation. This is what the governor says. This is what the emperor says. And just as the method of the cross, right? How is God going to rescue fallen humanity? By becoming one and dying in their place, period. So the message of the cross is God's plan. Verse number 21, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom. And you, could, you would understand, I think, that he means there the world by its wisdom knew not God. Again, we bring all the great human minds to solve the world's most pressing problem. They will never come up with God's solution. The world by wisdom knows not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So here's the world in its wisdom put to problem solving that never comes up with God. And here's God in his wisdom who finds it pleasurable to have simply the proclamation of what happened at the cross. Who it was, right? I determined to know nothing among you but Christ, Paul talking about who he is, and him crucified, what he did. That is what Paul is arguing. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, that's what pleases God. Through what appears to be to unregenerated men absolute idiocy, it pleases God to save all of mankind through that message. <clears throat> right? And, and again, folks, and I, I think, I'm, I'm not saying that Paul is being deliberately vague, because I don't think Paul is being deliberately vague. 
But I think God is being deliberately generalized because the impediments that people bring to receiving the gospel are going to vary depending upon the time in which they live and the place in which they live. So it's not possible to make a concise list of all of the ways that this is going to play out. All of the permutations of man's wisdom. But, but again, we don't need to be concerned about all the permutations of man's wisdom. We just need to be concerned that we're doing this. Right? That, that our message is the cross and it's Christ and that we are proclaiming it. And what about then, folks, in verse number 2, right? The, I mean, the heart, of, the heart of the entire conversation about how to reach people is found in this passage. I mean, it just is. And again, please, I'm not taking a shot across the bow at anybody or anything in the contemporary movement because fundamentalism has done this very kind of thing. And in fact, in some ways, fundamentalists of the 1960s and 70s were some of the leaders of the what do we have to do to get you to come to church and hear the message movement. What about the fact that the message of the cross causes problems to the Jewish people What about the fact that they trip over that? What if it is your task, folks? What if you wake up tomorrow morning with a specially handwritten message from heaven itself that says your job is to show up at the local synagogue next Sunday and preach, and you know that they are all going to en masse recoil at the proclamation of Christ on a cross? Well, what about that? Or what we know far better is that our unbelieving co-workers and relatives and acquaintances are inclined to find the whole idea idiotic. That it just staggers them that they're not good enough to be accepted as they are. There's just no way that it couldn't be like that. So what about that? I mean, what does God say to us in the face of those two obstacles? This was something, folks, I mean, you can read the book of Acts as well as I can. Paul went in every place to, to every synagogue and preached Christ, and at virtually every place he did that, right? He got beat up. <clears throat> he got ran out of town. And there would perhaps be a few people who would follow him and a few people who would want to hear him again. But for the most part, it was just flat-out hostility. Now, if Paul was a good American, right? He'd sit down with Timothy and go, we've got to figure out a better way to do this. Yeah, we've got, we got to figure out how to, how to address the fact that they don't want to hear this. Right, so we begin to ask the question, right? This is where the danger is. What are we going to have to do to get people to believe the message? Right, we don't want to change the message. We just want to know what we've got to do to get people to believe it, to listen to it. 
to receive it. <clears throat> right? And the Jews wanted some kind of miracle. Give me a sign. Give me an evidence. Give me a testimony. And even Jesus, in the short period of his earthly ministry, got tired of the question. Said, I'm not giving you. You're going to get this sign. Right? The sign of Jonah. Death and resurrection. That's the sign. But you can understand why the Jews would want that, folks. All you got to do is read the Old Testament and know that these were people who were thoroughly vetted in miracles. Their whole history is miraculous. So why not another miracle? And the Gentiles want some kind of wisdom. They want some kind of intellectual satisfaction. Right? Give me something that's going to make sense. Give me something that I can use. Give me something that's going to help me in the morning. Let's, let's form a study group and let's, let's have a debate about it and let's sit down and talk about whether it could possibly be true and figure out where the obstacles are. And, right? and, we, and, and, and I'm really not trying to be critical. I'm not trying to be critical of the books. If you're a believer, they're very helpful. But for unbelievers, they're terrible. The whole field of apologetics is if somehow I could prove to you from science that the rock wasn't really three million years old, now maybe you'll believe the gospel. As if the, only, as if the only impediment is that you just can't figure out how the world can look like it's a billion years old and not really be a billion years old. And if you could overcome that obstacle, then all would be well and you'd believe. Right? So there, there's no shortage of people right, that, that would kind of lead us to think that, you know, you know here, here are my real options. It's not me. Right? It's not my stubbornness. It's not my hardest of heart. It's not my unbelief. It's just, you know, the evidence is what the evidence is. And so if you can come up with some better evidence, I'll give you another hearing. But again, here is Paul. Right? Are you are you going to are you going to rise to those challenges? No, I am not. I am not. Verse number twenty three. I'm just going to do this. We preach Christ crucified. Let's come in and we preach Jesus crucified. And we recognize that when the Jews hear that, they trip over it, and when the Greeks hear this, they think it's stupid. And yet we do it. And yet we do it. And yet we do it because of verse number 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Right? So both the content of the cross and the communication of the cross is to those people who believe the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, folks, right, to, to simplify this, Paul is making the argument that God knows how to save sinners. He didn't just die on the cross to make the salvation of sinners possible. He knows how to save them. He doesn't need us to tell them, to tell him how they need to be saved. He knows how to save them. 
And that brings us then <clears throat> to verse number 25. Right? The, the cross is God's method and the proclamation of the cross is God's message. And in doing it this way, God has a distinct motivation. And we don't ultimately get to that motivation until we get to verse number 31, but we are led in that direction in verse number 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Right? And we understand that Paul is speaking, what we say, rhetorically, somewhat facetiously. In other words, folks, there's nothing about God anywhere in any way that is foolish. And there's nothing about God anywhere in any way that is weak. Paul is speaking kind of rhetorically. If, If God had a weak spot, it would be stronger than man's strong spot. If God had any element of folly in him, it would still be wiser than man's wisest spot. Right? And the motivation, folks, is this, is, is that, in, and again, this to some people I think just is, is unpleasant to the taste. But God is not willing to save sinners at the expense of his glory. He is is not willing to save them by circumventing the cross or its proclamation. And again, so we can jump ahead this evening. We'll come back to it next week. Right? So that, verse number 29, so that no flesh should glory in His presence. And I think the implication there is not the saved sinner or not just the saved sinner. In other words, Paul is concerned about, right? Paul Paul is never going to allow, because God is never going to allow, any human being to stand up and say, look, I am somewhat responsible for my salvation. But... But I don't really think that's the main point that Paul's making in verse number 29. I think the main point Paul's making in this, in this context is this. Right? So that I can't stand up and say, hey, see that guy over there? I'm responsible for his salvation. Because that's, the, that's what he's talking about, right? He's not talking about lost people receiving the gospel. He's talking about the way the Corinthians are, are trying to come up with, again, whatever he means with the wisdom of this world as a model for their ministry. Right? So God doesn't want anybody bragging, hey, you know, <clears throat> I wasn't that bad, did enough good, got in, look at me. But neither, folks, is there going to be any place, right? We're going to, we'll get to this when Paul just, right? He just eviscerates this entire mentality, right? Neither he that planteth or he that watereth is anything. So that, so that nobody's going to stand up and trade credit for how many they're responsible for having been there. When, when the answer is, folks, do we understand? The answer is none. The answer is none. 
Not ever. Not ever. All right, I'm going to stop there uh, this evening. If you want to take your prayer bulletin,